They call these people the 5%. 5% of your society are going to be the ones that want to fight. Whether they're mentally deranged, doped up, or just have a hard attitude about them, they're going to fight. And being able, the trick in, in SWAT is being able to not only set up and deal with these guys, but also to train for them. We used to train for the mom and pop stuff. We got really, really good at the mom and pop stuff. It was the guys that wanted to fight that we needed to train for. So that your training has to then escalate to deal with that. We knew from the narcotics officers that they were armed inside, that they had a guy at the front window overlooking the front of the, of the property, et cetera, and they were armed. As uh, we attempted to, to breach the front door, uh, gunfire rang out from inside, automatic weapons fire. We returned fire. One suspect was killed as a result of that fire, and we surrounded it and we gashed it and went in and recovered the other. It was a hell of a firefight. Terry Cahill went down in the field of fire, and Joe Chatham, one of the members of his team, instinctively knelt down and, and covered Terry Cahill. You don't, you don't train that. That comes from the heart. Two things are extremely contagious under stress. One of them is panic, and the other one's composure. Scott called for suppression fire on the Alpha 3 window, which is the window right next to the front door, executed that, went up evac Terry and Joe Chatham did a phenomenal job. He did. Had it not been for Scott knocking down the threat and evacing Terry, uh, it could have been a lot uglier. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. SWAT, Special Weapons and Tactics. This law enforcement acronym has been long romanticized, adored, despised, praised, and scrutinized in the United States as well as the world. The acronym has been a staple in TV and Hollywood as the world knew the names of Hondo and Deacon, as well as that iconic SWAT theme song. It has been the pinnacle of operational policing since the 1960s, conceived as an urban counterinsurgency bulwark. From the time the first brick was thrown and the first fire was lit in the 1965 neighborhood of Watts, to Charles Whitman climbing to the 28th floor of the University of Texas Tower, to the 1969 LAPD and Black Panther shootout, to the events of the 1977 White Rock Riot. It is very clear the need for a rapid response, heavily armed and uniquely trained team is needed. The Dallas Police Department, with our iconic patch and moniker of Dallas's finest, is also rich in history. High-profile shootings, assassination, riots, 
mass shootings, and also a standard for policing as we have our very own Dallas SWAT. And here to tell the story are some of the warriors who lived it and are living it. Some of the old guards as well as the new guardians of the city. Today we are joined by four very special guest co-hosts. It is my great honor to welcome on Scott McDonald, nicknamed the Commander, and for good reason. Hiring on DPD in 1968 and spending 27 years on Dallas SWAT as both a troop and a sergeant. His leadership skills and reputation are legendary. Steve Claggett spent 15 years on Dallas SWAT, and as Misty put it, was part of a core cadre that helped mold Dallas SWAT. His focus and passion for training stemmed from real-life tragedy of the Dallas Police Department. His reputation walks into the room before he does. We're having a roundtable, not just from some of the OGs of Dallas SWAT, but also current active members who have seen shifts in tactics, weaponry, as well as public perception. I'd like to welcome on one of our own, Danny Canetti. Danny has been with DPD for 16 years, eight on Dallas SWAT, master breacher certification, explosive breacher for the team for several years, sniper and less lethal, Danny was also a key figure in the 2015 attack on police headquarters, as well as engaging with the shooter on 7-7-2016. He's a rope master and rappel instructor for High Angle Team, and along with rappel instructor for TTPOA. Bringing 26 years of rock climbing experience for the most advanced rope and rappel program for SWAT in the state. Lastly, we have Matt Smith. Matt Smith has been with DPD for 22 years and a member of Dallas SWAT for 17. Matt, a squad leader, has been an instructor for basic and advanced SWAT, hostage rescue, and hazardous warrant entry, to name a few. Matt Smith is an exceptional and dedicated member of SWAT that strives to make his teammates better, safer, and to protect the citizens of Dallas. He is a true, true professional. Guys, I can't thank you enough for coming on here and doing this program i i've had this idea for history lesson and swat in general for the whole country and specifically dallas swat because dallas swat is so rich in history we have steve claggett back here you've already heard of his story got matt smith he was on the dynamic warrant episode danny canetti's always here he literally has had his hands on every single episode cleaning this shit up to make it sound good He's probably going to take out that that shit. There's a person here that you've only heard of by nickname in a few episodes. He's been called the commander probably the majority of his career. He spent 24 years in SWAT. He hired on in 1968. He's been a, an operator as well as a supervisor in Dallas SWAT. He's seen it all. He's seen the evolution of SWAT from early on the decades change nobody's heard his real name other than just his nickname scott mcdonald thank you for being here and being a part of this i can't think of somebody a more important figure that can be here to explain this history 
Well, you're very kind. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invite. Your son uh, texted me and told me to say all that nice things about you. I'll get even. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Dallas SWAT, it's looked at as one of the most prestigious SWAT units in the country, I believe. Uh, we're going to do like a little history of uh, SWAT starting in 1965 in L.A., uh, the Watch Riots, August 11th, 1965, the Watch Riots hit. We've had the 1966 UT Austin Tower shooting with Whitman climbing those towers. We've had LAPD and Black Panther shootout. We've had the May 17, 1974 LAPD shootout. That dealt with Patty Hearst and those radicals. There has always been a need for a rapid rescue response unit that's heavily armed and heavily trained and uniquely trained. And you guys have actually watched that evolution. We have two retirees here and we have two active SWAT members here and all working in different eras. And they've seen the advancement in weaponry, tactics, and technology. Technology is starting to become more key. Uh, we're going to get into that. So I want to, I want to get into you, uh, your retirees that were the foundation for Dallas SWAT. And y'all helped mold f training tactics early on that have continued and are still being used to, to, to this day. In 65 on the Watch Riots, L.A. was nearly burnt down. Inspector Daryl Gates, he had the idea to form a a unit for counterinsurgency for, for, uh, urban counterinsurgency. Is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can y'all talk about that? Would y'all know about that? Yeah. In fact, Scott and I had the pleasure of listening to chief Gates, uh, at a conference that we were attending or competition we were content, uh, attending. And it was, it was phenomenal. The guy was a true leader and a true fire breather. Uh, every rank he was in, he, he brought the best out of people, uh, extremely progressive. Of course, he made a lot of enemies doing that too, which shocking how that happens. But he uh, he first implemented SWAT there in L.A. Um, after the Watts riots. They uh, of course, there are two notable shootings they had after that was was the uh, Black Panther shootout and the uh, S.L.A. shootout. They uh, the thing that I think was most concerning to to Gates and the team is that. They really weren't prepared for that either. It just turned out to be a bunch of guys with with rifles and pistols and shotguns shooting out with with knuckleheads inside a building. So um, they started getting a lot more progressive the way they did their business. Um, basically, throw throw bodies and throw ammo at it. That was the kind of the philosophy back then. We'll outlast them. On the on the SLA shootout, they um, they tried to implement gas, hot gas in there, which was pretty much the the standard back then, and ended up blowing, burning the place down. That was. Uh, Good learning point because it was basically a kidnapping of Patty Hearst, um, who was a, a um, her dad was a media mogul in L.A. Yeah, and when they kidnapped her, she was not at the location, but uh, had she been there, it, it, I mean, obviously she would have been involved in the in the fire too, and and uh, been killed that way. But um, so they they again started tweaking their tactics and learned to be a little more surgical and things like that because of the collateral damage. But they took they took black eyes over that, which is just it's it's reprehensible. But the media was against them on that, saying they were too heavy handed. You see a lot of experts later on that were were 
throwing in their two cents and still today do on, on different things. Um, they just to take a side uh, step on this, David Klinger, who was an LAPD cop during this time, and he ended up going and getting his PhD in criminal justice. And now he's teaching, I think even still today at uh, University of Missouri in St. Louis. And him and his partner did a study on SWAT and, and, and the benefits of SWAT, the challenges of SWAT, things like that. And he, he found out uh, through surveys and just their own empirical data that they, uh, anytime SWAT gets called out, you can get, be guaranteed two things. One is the rounds aren't going to be nearly as, as heavy as what they would be in a normal patrol operation. Um, there's, they return fire less than what they do just because the armor and things that they bring to the table. And they usually get compliance through means other than lethal force whether it's just their the presence tearing stuff off in the house, you know, exposing suspects or uh, the introduction of chemical agents in there and things like that. They will bring the suspects to them. So basically final option is going inside. That's that's considered the final option in SWAT, the standard that always that's been there for the last, you know, couple decades at least. And and so uh, that heavy-handed reputation that SWAT has had for a lot of years is couldn't be any farther from the truth. Uh well, to this day, the media is still held, and, and Matt, you, you, you and Danny both see firsthand how the media and and some public perception they want us, they need us, but as soon as something looks somewhat aggressive on a camera, it can be spun and is spun in a lot of different ways. Absolutely, I mean, we talked about that just with the uh, dynamic warrants. Yeah, you know, and the no knock and versus surrounding call out and all the advantages and disadvantages, the appearance of things, you know, that is the way that's been cast in light with the, the media now is is it couldn't be more wrong. But uh, I, you know, history shows, and our you know, this is what Steve's alluding to is the the numbers show that you know when when we're doing it and doing it the way we need to, everybody's safer, not just the officers but the suspects as well. Well, the num the num the numbers you brought in for your episode on the dynamic warrants are just phenomenal i mean you know it's the numbers don't lie right you know and, and when you are called to a scene it's not a pretty situation right, right. It, it it and it's a serious situation well on the swat when you're when you're called out it's already met that threshold of resistance because that's why you're there and you know when, when we're called in to handle a situation because it's gotten past the the scope of your you know normal patrol officers or whatever mm -hmm. whether it be policy or just the right thing to do when we it's already gone bad so we have to bring a calm to the situation from the time we get there and that's usually what we do and what steve's alluding to you have a show of force you surround it and you, you know, now they know they're not escaping so they can surrender and be the easiest way for everybody or they can continue to fight back and we have options for that and if they want to, they want to go that way. We can do that. That's the reason why we're there is because you know people talk about special weapons and it's tactics. The tactics is what saves everybody, and that's what a lot of people miss. That they see the the gear and the guns and the, all that gear, and that's easy because it's the optics of it. But the tactics is what they don't understand. That's what really saves the day. Well, you, we always want to be a level higher of force than than what the suspect or what the aggressor has, right? We, you, and when you show up. They're not going to have more weaponry than you, right? Yeah. They're not going to have more armor than you, and you are there for a reason to show a force. And also, when people see a show of force, a lot of the times they back down. Yeah. They're not going to sit and fight. Oh shit, I'm outgunned here. I'm not going to. I'm not going to fight this one. I'm not going to win this one. I'll tell you right? when. Yeah, of there, there there are exceptions to that. There there are the hardcore yes. who really don't really care about the odds uh, or the image. They're willing to sit, stand there and fight it out with you. 
Well, those are the outliers too, and 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 but those need to be dealt with accordingly as well, right? That's they chose. They bought it. They buy tickets to these uh, these events too, right? Yeah. So they they got to deal with the outcome. Well, and they call these people the five percent. Yep, five percent of your society are going to be the ones that want to fight, whether they're mentally deranged, doped up, or just have a hard attitude about them. They're going to fight. And being able, the trick in, in SWAT is being able to not only set up and deal with these guys, but also to train for them. Because the old saying we had back when Scott and I were on the team, was it yesterday? Is is basically, we used to train for the mom and pop stuff. We got really, really good at the mom and pop stuff. It was the guys that wanted to fight that we needed to train for. So that your training has to then escalate to deal with that. Um, so teams get pretty comfortable in what they do because – it's always worked up to now, you know that mentality, which drives me crazy. I think we've yeah. said this before. I, yeah, that yeah. the way we've always done it. mentality. Yeah, 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 and and I, and I think that is the trick uh, from a, a team environment, from a training environment, is to always look for that next level. You know, look what we did. We could have done better in the last warrant, the last BP, the last hostage hostage gig, and then figure out what we can do to make it better in training. So it's it's multifaceted. It's just being able to step over those those hurdles and and gear things in a in a a smart direction, but one of the things that we failed at, in my opinion, when we were when we were young in our infancy stages, when I was there, is that we used to do written after actions after every hit, whether it was a warrant or a barricade. We used to do after actions, and and guys would write down their opinion uh, their opinions. They most of them turned out to be BJ sessions, where you know, oh, good good stuff. You did great, Sarge. You know this kind of stuff, and and some guys would get pretty specific and go, yeah, we could have done this better. How about this? How about this? How about this? And there was one sergeant in particular that he didn't like it, made him look bad. So he would come up and challenge guys if they wrote something in there that was contrary to, oh, you were great. You know, you should be wearing a cape. And if it was contrary to that, he'd get red-assed over it. And so because of that, it went away. And we no longer did it. So, um, In in light of what Steve just alluded to, the incident on Arizona, 3010 Arizona, uh, all of the – that was an exercise in – stupidity because mm-hmm. all of the things that steve just mentioned about incorrect behavior poor mm-hmm. performance all came to light at that incident can you describe that incident what what happened so the listener uh, what would what, what know what happened on that we were tasked with another squad um to hit a, a house mm-hmm. at 3010 arizona and this is this is in march march of 93 okay Right after the Waco incident, so the the Camp Davidian raid at right, Waco. Yep. So all of the media coverage for days on end on end regarding the Waco incident led up to right up to this warrant that we ran at 3010 Arizona. We knew from the narcotics officers that they were armed inside, that they had a guy at the front window overlooking the front of the of the property, et cetera, and they were armed. So we went in there to hit it and got up to the front door. And as we attempted to, uh, David Brown's squad was primary and we were secondary. As uh, we attempted to to breach the front door, uh, gunfire rang out from inside, automatic weapons fire. From the front window? From the front window, immediately to the right of the entry point, the front door. Uh, we At that point in time, we had a standing rule once the threshold is breached, we push on. We would not stop and leave some members of the team inside and some out. So once once the threshold is, was breached and entry was executed, everybody went. 
but that 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 shooting we came under fire before before penetrating the threshold so david brown's squad pulled back and uh, we returned fire one suspect was killed as a result of that fire and we surrounded it and we gassed it and went in and recovered the other uh, reflecting back on the the waco incident the camp davidian thing yes. and all the coverage of that one has to ask, why would teenagers choose to take on a highly trained, <clears throat> excuse me, a highly trained, highly, highly equipped, outgunned group of people? Why would you take them on in a gunfight? And and that was that has always boggled my mind. And I think it was because of all of the coverage from Waco that they saw the officers retreating and dragging their wounded away and this, that, and the other encouraged these kids, teenagers to take on SWAT. And, uh, it was a hell of a firefight. Um, Terry Cahill went down in the field of fire and Joe Chatham, one of the members of his team instinctively knelt down while the rest of his squad sought cover knelt down and, and covered Terry Cahill. In my opinion, Joe Chatham was probably the only one who deserved a medal out of that. He, uh, you, don't, you don't train that. That comes from the heart. And, and he instinctively did that. But because of the politics that we have all witnessed, yeah. there were people who got medals. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> medals out of that that had no business getting a medal out of that. Joe Chatham, in my opinion, was the only hero there. So uh, okay, Scott, I'm going to cut. There, I'm gonna cut there, in. But there, there, it, it, what went wrong in that? The tactics, our tactics. We we aborted the entry as as trained, and you guys just just experienced one of these, didn't you? But y'all had already threatened. Y'all had already threatened uh, uh, breach the threshold. Yeah, so uh, the other week we had gone to serve a warrant, and uh, using the tactics we do, it wasn't just a single entry point. So mm-hmm. the entry team had just made that breach, and I think one or at least one or two guys had committed into the front room to take that front mm-hmm. room, start that process when we took uh, shots through a window yeah. at other members of the team, uh, actually myself. Um, and so that was a an abort. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't want to use the word as abort as in we shut everything down, but it was, it was a change in tactics. Mm-hmm. So it got shut down as far as penetrating the structure and owning the structure from the inside to backing out, uh, using barricade. other tacti- tactics, yeah. doing the barricade yeah. tactics, and then progressively applying those levels of force and then owning the structure from there. You mind if I throw my no. two cents on this, Scott? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, good. The one thing, because Commander, he is a humble guy, and he won't do this. I'm going to toot his horn for him. The, Please do. One of the things that came out of this that was obvious, and I didn't understand it until later on, but two things are extremely, extremely um, contagious under stress. One of them is panic, and the other one's composure. And there is no better example, in my opinion, of both levels of supervision. One panicked, one was composed. Scott called for suppression fire on the Alpha 3 window, which is the window right next to the front door, executed that, went up, evac'd Terry, and Joe Chatham did a phenomenal job. He did, but had it, not been, had it not been for Scott and, and then pressing that, that threat, knocking down the threat, and evacuating Terry, uh, it could have been a lot uglier. uglier. Um, 
So I'm, I'm going to sing your praises on that because you deserve it, and that's the only reason. But it's in true fashion back then, if there was something that was questionable or dicey, the department had the reputation of or had, had the habit of throwing medals at it. We're going to cover it up with medals. You guys were all heroic. No, it no, wasn't. No. It wasn't that way. Yeah, I think if we look at any incident, even going back to the more current ones from 2016 and and, and see something similar. We, we've all seen that. Yeah. Um, I went to that award ceremony and, and saw. Uh, so let me, if I can reflect okay. on that just a little bit. As far as that incident goes, it changed a lot in the way we did warrants in the future. At that point in time, we, we went down 3010 Arizona without a full bag of equipment. We didn't have our gas mask because we didn't use gas on warrant entries. Um, the briefing intelligence prior to the warrant is we would have, uh, we would have a briefing interview with the narcotic officer who went in and made the buy and who could provide us with the information that the pertinent information regarding the suspects inside and the operation, this, that, and the other. No, if they could provide us with a floor plan, they did. And if they didn't have a floor plan, uh, your best guess. From that, uh, going forward from that, uh, we always thereafter went into a warrant with a full bag of equipment, gas mask, chemicals, all, all of the full complement. Num- uh, number two is we did a drive-by and a video drive-by, and from the structure, from the outside analysis of the structure of the of the place, we developed floor plans. And you can do that very easily. Just think a little bit about it. Yeah, just looking at the outside of the structure, noticing where vents are, exactly how the windows are laid out. Exactly, common common uh, construction for homes these days. Yeah, tactical diagramming. It's called. Yep. Yes. Anytime, anything yeah. you put tactical in front of it makes it really cool. It's, yeah, it's much cooler. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that became part of the training program as to how to, how to analyze a structure and develop a floor plan from those things you just. That's mentioned. very interesting. You bring this up because it's nice to know where it started. Because when I came on, the culture was. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want to give away too many details, but there's very much involved in the drive-bys now more than just a drive-by video and some pictures it's the intel is much more where we do as much as we can mm-hmm. on the front end and then the culture's always been since i've been on that yes you definitely bring all your equipment yeah. for that call out because yeah yes. not only could it end up like last week where we pull out and now it's a very yes. good person but yes. there have been times we get called out while we're still running the first warrant yep. and then we go directly to a second location absolutely yeah yep. absolutely see that's why i wanted to have this history lesson here for Dallas SWAT. Commander, you hired on in 1968, is that right? That's correct. Okay. Yeah, your your son told me that too. The birth of Dallas SWAT is 1968, right? December of 1968 mm-hmm. is when it started. Actually, it was a little before December. Okay. Yeah. They, okay. Start, they started configuring about mid-year, configuring the, the five units, mm-hmm. A, B, C, D, and E units. Uh, they were taking recruits right out of the right out of the academy into SWAT, what into, could go wrong? into Dallas Tactical, yeah, because they hadn't been infiltrated with bad ideas. But right, that, that, that that's beside the point. We learn from our history of bad ideas, right? Mm-hmm. You, sometimes. you hope you sometimes. Hope. Well, in '68, where I would imagine the country, all major departments, with Dallas has always been a major department, is modeling their units after what was going on on the west coast correct okay and we finally got to the point it's been romanticized through tv shows uh hell we even had our own dallas watch show here we're not going to mention no but uh (laughs) 
there's we're I, I want to give a, a quick shout out to somebody we're missing before I get into the, the birth of Dallas Watt. She is a hero, a legend on Dallas PD, still active. Detective Misty Van Curen. She couldn't make it today. She spent a decade in Dallas SWAT, and she is one of the toughest, hardest working people I have ever met. And she is definitely missed today to be a part of this. She would bring a lot of class to this group. Today. Yeah, she'd bring some intelligence to it. I mean, too. yeah. So 1968, the birth of SWAT, but it wasn't called SWAT. It was tactical unit. Can y'all? Can you? Can you talk about whenever that unit was presented? And then there's also an incident in the Lancaster uh, barricade that I want y'all to talk about. Whenever that tactical unit was formed, how you know how big it was, and 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 how it was received, because it was it was tactical unit, but it was actually wink wink SWAT, right? Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? And before the actual development of the five units of tactical, uh, there was a a crusty old lieutenant named Holloway. And he had assembled, I see some nods around the table, his name, is, his, his name lives on today. And, but he had assembled a group of um, proven operators, people who had a reputation and a history of being able to handle themselves. Were they called raiders? That was that the Holloway's name raiders, yeah. yeah. And they would handle the high-risk stuff up until the time that – Dallas Tactical was was fully formulated. A lot of robberies. A lot lot of robberies, a lot of stakeouts, shotgun stakeouts, and you're stopping robs. Um, In December, and it always cranked up around the end of the year, November through the end of the year, because it was shopping time for the bandits, you know, to go in and pull robberies. And so they they would place... um, Armed officers in businesses, stopping, well, call it stopping rob, 7-Elevens and that kind of yeah. stuff. <laughs> uh, for the specific purpose of foiling armed robberies. So up until December of 68, when Floyd Knight was sitting in a, in a store, and uh, suspect came in to rob the store, and apparently Floyd had making made a restroom visit and when he came out of the restroom the the hijacker had to anyway um floyd was killed in that thing al was killed in that thing and that was in december of 68 so thereafter ever we still we still did for a number of years did shotgun stakeouts in businesses at that time of the year so so you've got a bunch of people from the academy and other venues coming into dallas tactical doing shotgun stakeouts. But like you started out and you mentioned the Symbionese Liberation Army and the Black Panthers and the anti-war protest and and all of that was going on at that point in time, crowd control was the main emphasis. The State Fair of Texas, uh, the last high school Friday night and the crowds and the violence that always came with high school night at the State Fair of Texas. Um, So... Nothing changes. <laughs> <laughs> Some things yeah. remain the same. But um, the, the tactics were a little bit different. Uh, today, it seems like our operators are handcuffed. Back then, we had a lot more community support, I mean, throughout the community, uh, for maintaining law and order. And the tactics were a little more um, uh, energetic, shall we say. Uh, <laughs> and there was... Uh, there was a riot at, 
at White Rock Lake on a Sunday afternoon. In 1977. 19, right? 19, yeah. yeah, 1977. Yeah. And that evolved. Some officers tried to – on the east side of White Rock Lake, there was uh, what they called a, a yacht club and a bathhouse, a swimming place. And that was a Sunday afternoon collection point, uh, assembly point for all of the war protesters and all the other little punkies. Uh, some officers tried to make an arrest, and then the crowd gathered and evolved into a citywide assist officer. If you can go, go, you know. And so there was a lot of response to that, and the response that it took a while to gain control of the situation, given what with the manpower we had at that point in time. So basically SWAT until some of these other things came to came to pass uh, kind of starting with the Lancaster deal uh, Dallas SWAT was oriented toward tra- crowd control to a large degree and as those the war ended in 70 the Vietnam War ended in 74 75 and and so the the mission of Dallas SWAT Dallas Tactical became a little more special events oriented can you explain to the listener why it was called Dallas Tactical as opposed to Dallas SWAT at the time? Um, all of the activities uh, that occurred out on the West Coast in L.A. and, and other uh, venues on the West Coast, um, there, there was a TV series called SWAT, L.A. SWAT, SWAT. And that was, that was very popular. And, and then there was a movie called SWAT, and that, that was a pretty good pretty good movie um but the powers that be in dallas didn't want to didn't want dallas to be recognized in that light um i think they preferred a kinder gentler image so it was tactical and and that dallas tactical they refused to recognize the swat label until we went to the international SWAT competition in Orlando and everybody all of the SWAT teams from all over the country were called SWAT and and we evolved and we the first year we were down there we registered as Dallas Tactical and after that we said that's bullshit we're going to be Dallas SWAT what year was that 1992 was our first year 93 93 was our first year Okay, because when I when I came on, it's officially Dallas SWAT, but still the entire department still called it TAC. TAC. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What year was that? I came on in two thousand six. Okay, Matt, was it still was it still uh, tactical whenever you got on? No. Okay. No, when I came right, when, really? I, when I came to SWAT in 05, it was already called SWAT, but there were still many guys, you know, guys, senior guys that still oh, there yeah. that had the tactical rocker yeah. on their BDUs. Yeah. It actually and, looked uh, cool. Yeah, and yeah. so, it really but cool. it was, I mean, I, I really, I never even thought about it, the tactical versus SWAT, because when I came on in 99, I think it was still called tactical at the time. Mm-hmm. But when I came to SWAT, I, I just didn't understand the difference in the names, you know, the verbiage of it. When I came over, I realized that was a big deal. Like, people's like, hey, we worked to get, the SWAT thing done. Yeah, so it, was, it was. It was a hard sell. And I'm sure you I'm know. Telling and, you. and after being here for as long as I have now, I realize that probably was because they don't want to change anything. But at the same time, you know, it, since I've been here in 2005, it's always been SWAT. But you know, there was many guys that had that you know for years still had the tactical rocker on their BDUs. No, I remember. It was older stuff. Yeah, it was actually really cool. It looks really cool. Yeah. I I, I want to get a picture of of one of those tactical rockers whenever we release this episode for the post. Scott's got one under his. 
his good. shirt right now. Okay, good. Oh, he's wearing I got it sold on my T-shirt well, right here. Well, he's dressed in this general outfit here. Like he came in uh, dressed like the commander. He's, so he's yeah, he's like the commander. Yeah, yes. yeah he always damn, does. He's got both sides of the shirt are full of medals. So, yeah. <laughs> so you're, we you're ma- full of shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, here, okay. Hey, the listeners know I'm full of shit. <laughs> I promise you. I, t- I tell you, Joe, the thing that the whole tactical SWAT thing reveals is the same problems that we had when we were trying to get sub guns, when we went to the MP5s. Mm-hmm. And they had just gone to them just before I got out of there. And, and the way they sold it was because you can't have machine guns because you'll kill everybody in the neighborhood. And so it, it got sold by saying these are select fire weapons. And they're going, okay, you can have those, but no machine guns. Like okay, fools. So it was the same thing with with going to SWAT. Is it it had to it had the public perception is what they were worried about always, which just drove me crazy. Um, and, and so by by selling it as more professional, you know, we're professional guys. We take guys, train them well, equip them well, which we weren't back then. But it it was able to be more palatable to the the those within power. Um, so it, the. We did not do ourselves any favor by perception and educating people on what we truly did. We actually brought a bunch of uh, a bunch of chiefs and some city council out to the range to show them capabilities. Okay, our snipers can hit quarters at 200 yards, you know. And so they were like, "Oh, that's kind of neat." Um, did the same thing with the explosive breaching package, bringing people out there to show them how surgical that was. Otherwise, they were ignorant. You know, the the armored vehicles weren't for running people over and smashing into houses. They were for rescuing people, providing hardcover in front of a location. Just that education, we kind of failed at that in the early years of not getting people sold on the true reasons behind it. Well, that's because y'all have a task to do. You care about the mission and care about completing the task as safe as possible. You don't care about all the fluff, the window dressing that everybody else cares about. You have a job to do. You're the one sitting there in the line of fire. Y'all have to deal with this. Y'all actually have to use this weaponry in in these in these vehicles and also evolve your tactics from some cases, tragedy, right? Yeah. Y'all, y'all are the ones going through this, not somebody that's sitting there watching it on the news and, and forming an opinion. Yeah. Um, going from shotgun squad to tactical, right? You mentioned a, a, an incident happened, uh, Lancaster barricade. Can y'all talk about that? Uh, just a word before we get okay. specifically to Lancaster. In the early days, mm-hmm. our equipment issue was a 36-inch wooden baton yeah. for crowd control, a, a military surplus flak vest, which wasn't bulletproof. We didn't have an armored personnel carrier, which will come to light at Lancaster. Um, the equipment we had it was military hand-me-downs. The, the first two two three caliber rifles that were issued were issued to the sergeants of the— uh, 20 of the 20 squads that was then the tactical unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can't put those in the hands of these troopers, uh, these officers. It's got to be, it, you got to have a sergeant control that weapon because, you know. Can't be trusted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so in the beginning, that's what we had to work with. And, and you look at what, what is in the arsenal, the, the bag of tricks, the repertoire of today's SWAT, uh, it's, it's phenomenal. But, yeah, Matt, uh, Matt and Danny can, are going to get into that, what, what they got in their bag of tricks okay. now compared to what was. Where is your bag of tricks? Because I'd like to see it yeah. <laughs> and maybe play with it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Borrow it. It's a family show, Steve. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I can put the explicit tag on it. Don't worry. Yeah. 
Nice. Uh, moving along to, to the Lancaster incident mm-hmm. that you, you just need. I don't know in, nothing about in, this. I'm curious in, about this. In, sure. in April of uh, 1991, uh, this, this place, there used to be an old well-known hero, iconic a baseball player named Dizzy Dean, who was a broadcaster. This was once his estate. It's kind of out in the country and down in Lancaster. Well, there's there's a squatter that set up residence in that house, that ranch house. And the owner showed up, and uh, this guy ran the, off, uh, the owner off with uh, gunfire. So he calls Lancaster PD, and two Lancaster PD officers drive up out front. And if anybody wants a, a picture of of that site i have it um the two lancaster officers detectives show up and they come under fire okay rifle fire rifle fire yeah from a vent in the attic that overlooked the circular drive out front so they're they're pinned down and they get on the hook and and ask for dallas uh, swat assistance dallas tactical i'm going to call it like it is like for dallas swat assistance yes so at that point in time, SWAT had been reduced to two units, A unit and E unit. Why A and why E? Because about 1975-ish, when the, when the Vietnam War ended, SWAT was reduced to two units. And they asked us, uh, they, we're going to put three of the units out in patrol as response teams to high crime areas. Uh, do you all want to ma- retain your your A and E designation, or do you want to change it to A and B? And and we we all said no. We want to be A unit, and we want to stay E unit. So that's that's how you get to A and E nowadays. Kept, <laughs> that's kept, the, kept the bookends A and then the E. Right how many that. guys on each unit then? At, at the time? that time, it was four squads in each in each unit. So we had eight squads, uh, nine people, a sergeant and nine. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Don't you wish? Where you Don't you wish? Now? Where are we at, Matt? Operational, we're under thirty. Good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're we're slotted for forty. So four squads. Forty is a good number. Yeah, yeah. Four, four, we well, can that's get four sergeants and thirty six operators. But it, they, it, but then you can't have anyone injured. You can't yeah. have anyone off on off, vacation. Yeah. No one. You can't Ill. have any other yeah. special yeah. time or anything going like like this going on. Yeah. But see, Houston runs with twenty five. Being as big as cities there, but they've got they've got uh, support teams that are guys yeah. that used to be on the team are part of their rifle teams. Yeah, kind of like L.A. Up. with the whole yeah. metro. metro. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. it's they've got a bigger pool than what Dallas has right now. So you guys, it's getting that done with what you guys do with that. A number is tough. Where's the small well, yeah, has been? When you look at the original Dallas tactical, uh, over 120 officers, and now you're down to 30. That, well, that's I, phenomenal. Yeah. And today's in today's environment is much more violent. Yeah, we don't even have thirty operational officers right now because you have five brand new guys who just got here last week. You have people that are out injured, and you have people that are non-operational for other reasons. Uh, so you're, we're under thirty right now, and we have been for quite some time. How, how many guys would you say are on the team that have had four or five years on the team or less? Probably either a third or almost half. Oh, God. So maybe tough. maybe five guys on the team who have been on over five years, or yeah, well, or over over. Well, 10 I years? would say you, you say I would say if if you set the number at eight, you have over half of the division under eight years of experience in the SWAT. What do you guys do when you get simultaneous operation BPs, hostage situations? What do you, what do you do you when you get that? 
you handle the one that you're at first or the, the, the pressing one with and everybody the, with, else hang on and you yes sir and you try to you know and this didn't happen that often obviously but you you divide up your resources and send a small contingent over to the second location because and hopefully again you, you determine the priority of them what's going on what's the what's the status of that operation you send them over there just to kind of hold the fort down if you will until you can reallocate people from the first location to the second one We've done it. We just did that on a warrant for a couple of months ago where we had two locations we had to hit. We had to put a small footprint of officers at the second location in, in the Grove while we hit the one on, in Oak Cliff, and then we transitioned people over if we needed to. But Okay, in, in light of that, though, and I know you guys do this, which is phenomenal, you accelerate your training. You do a lot more training than what we used to do back in the old days. We try. And, yeah, and, and you, you've got a good complement of armor that you can put around places right. just to kind of minimize guys' exposure. So Sure. Well, uh, that's one of the things that I was telling Joe about this whole thing, that when I came over, the two APCs we had didn't even run. Yeah. That was those old peacekeepers, and we just never used them. We just hid in the streets behind whatever's in the streets. And now we have, well, we have one that's down. But right, but when we're at fully staffed, we can have five pieces of legitimate APC armor to put on places with drones, and that can somehow, you know, it's yeah, a, it's awesome. a yeah. you know, it, it helps you with that. But it still doesn't replace bodies. You know, it can help you, but it doesn't solve all your problems. Those armored vehicles probably would have run better, but somebody in the room got his T-bone one time rolling up to a to a, a hit. Oh, the old ones? Yeah. yeah. It, somebody here got his T-boned, and, and his response was, get out and run. So we did, ran down three <laughs> yeah. blocks and hit it. Well, we've, it wasn't me. Well, we— <laughs> We've we've got some that are high centered or stuck sometimes and had to bail oh, off. They, and they're embarrassing. They're embarrassing. No, they're the, embarrassing. Uh, that is without a doubt one of the best things you know. Because you know, it's not like you can say, you know, APCs. Obviously, you need those. I yeah. mean, it, it goes it goes without saying. It's an understatement. But when you've when you've worked without them, you know, when we didn't have any, the two that we had right. when I came over didn't right. run, and now we have. And now if we have, if we're down to three, we're all like, why we don't you know? Because yeah. you, you become spoiled with them because they're they're great things to have danny how many armored vehicles did you guys have when you got there yeah we had three we primarily used the new one we had the two older ones and, what's uh, what's old the two that we got when you were here yeah yeah oh they no you still don't have oh yeah they were no, no. older no no sorry no, just, they came no. over in 05 the year i came no, over we still have them. no we had some that were older than that. no 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 yes, i knew yes. that's what i'm saying yeah. you no. don't have those those aren't no no, no we don't have those oh but the old peacekeepers that we had when I first came over yeah. that never ran, we had those for oh. for months. And then finally, I don't know, I've been here for several months, and we, you know, I guess whatever long it was. And then we finally got the, the two new ones in, which to these guys are the little old, the old two ones, which are the oldest ones, which are the smaller ones. But those were the big ones and the nice ones when we first got no, them. There's two that were older. Yeah, we, no, I remember yes. those. Yeah, yeah, I remember those. And you know what yeah. was funny is the, the last two ones we got was in 2020, right in the middle of the defund the police. So all of a sudden, these two things showed up. And it's because it was a year and a half in the making with the sure. federal paperwork. Sure. But ironic. Bearcats? Yep. Both of them? Yep. Yeah. They both showed up like the month before the riots. And they really weren't Good even time. really, they weren't even outfitted with radios or anything. It was like, hey, we got to put them in service because we need them. What capabilities do they have just to get off on a tangent? Or do we need to not talk about this? Well, no, we can talk about it, and I'll, I'll just kind of answer your question briefly, but then I feel bad. I think we got off topic. Commander was on the Lancaster. We're going back. We'll, we'll go back. This is so, a memory test for Scott. So I think <laughs> some, some of the stuff you're probably aware of, you know, has the turret, yeah. um, the protection. Now they have um, what we call the boom on the front, so right. it's an arm. It has a gas injector on it as well, right. so we can push that through. The new ones have um, the windshield has a protection guard that folds down, so for riots and everything else, so if it 
you know. Um, the undersides on one of them is heavily armored. It's made for overseas for right. IEDs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The green one has a filtration wrap. system on it because it's yep. made for sea burning. Yeah. And stuff That's like what that. I was going to ask about. Some of the new ones have that. It's incredible. Yeah. Yep. That that would have come up handy, real handy, on Lancaster and the, the other one at Walcott because we had to. Beautiful, beautiful segue. Keep nice. going. Yeah, it was yeah. good. It was seamless. Great right. segue. Oh, yeah. Back to yeah. let's, yeah. let's get back on. Let's get the. Let's get the. Uh, ABC back on the Lancaster. (laughs) (laughs) Back to April of 91. Uh, So uh, Lancaster PD calls at 11.30 a.m., calls Dallas PD for uh, a SWAT attack response. And the first units uh, arrived out there on location at noon, about 12 noon. And E unit was primary. And um, this guy is in the house, and he's ready to fire. He's ready to bring bring on the firefight, whatever it takes. Uh, they surround the location and they start. Uh, uh, well, he's got two officers pinned down. Yeah, still. No, that's on Walcott. Uh-uh. It's Lancaster. It's yeah, Lancaster. the two Lancaster detectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, yeah, they initially paid. responded. Yeah, mm-hmm. but we didn't have an APC. Okay. Okay, so those guys are hung out, kind of down there, sunbathing in the heat. Yeah. Um, at as time rolls on, um, they shot a bunch of gas into the house thinking this might bring the guy out and, and instead it drove him up into the attic and we had we had opened up so many windows and ports in that house and with the, the strong wind out of the south it was ventilating the gas through the house so fast that it really didn't get up to the to the attic um, at one o'clock uh, we requested an APC from the Texas National Guard and to get that had to go through the governor's office and all the way back and it took three hours to get an apc authorized and that's incredible and in the meantime we're out there trying to gas this guy and trying to evac the the pin down lancaster detectives and uh things went on so about um four yeah the at 3 30 the lancaster officers were extracted and they were debriefed for any intel they might be able to, to uh, provide. At 4.47, entry was initiated through the front door. Commander. Um, <laughs> I, I, I didn't fully hear that. I said that's it, why he's the commander. Yeah. <laughs> it's time. So, specific so they, uh, they, they initiated the entry through the front door. And... Um, the structure of the house was such that if you go through the front door, there's a hallway to the right, a room directly in front of, of the, uh, the front door, and, and some more part of the house back to the left of the front door. And Officer Gary Smith was uh, lead operator. He breached the door, and he went across the, the hallway and posted on the wall directly across from the door, and the suspect tracked him across the, uh, the hallway and shot him through the wall. Where was he hit? He chest was, and shul- ch- in upper chest and then out the back. Uh, this guy is using a thirty thirty rifle. It lodged. So, it lodged in his back plate of his vest. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So we got an officer down. Okay. Doug Kowalski should have been an operator for years before he got to be a commander, the command position, because he liked to get in with the action. Uh, the lieutenant and Sergeant Denemy and. Uh, <clears throat> And Doug were on the entry team. Well, now they have to do a, a downed officer evac. So they pulled that off and, and got Gary Smith out of there. And, 
at that point in that that late in the afternoon they call for a unit to come out and relieve a unit because the e unit was pretty spent by then so a unit <clears throat> showed up at five o'clock out there and we were in the process of swapping off perimeter positions and doing a relief at um you talk about uh communications in, a, in an incident and, and how important they are at uh, 6 30 the green light <clears throat> air quotes the green light was commanded to the perimeter teams uh, at 6 47 the suspect explain green light scott for, for uh, people that don't gonna, know we're gonna yep. okay yeah, go I'll, I'll take a break and deviate here and green light was a term that was never used in before this incident in my opinion in the Dallas Police Department. Um, seen it on television and in the movies, and people had talked about it, but that green light command was given to the perimeter positions. Nobody on the perimeter questioned, what do you mean, green light? There was no question of that command. Okay? So later on, and we'll get to this in the debrief, it became a big question, especially administratively, higher up. What, what are you doing issuing a command that's, that nobody's ever been briefed on before? It's not in our tactical manual, anything like that. But basically, a green light is take out the subject and next target of opportunity. At the, at Re- the earliest opportunity. Regardless. You, you see him, you, see him you, you take him out. And, and that was not questioned. In, in the post-event conversations that was heavily questioned well what okay what do you want to use do you want to use plain voice okay you perimeter positions or use precision rifle positions shoot the shoot the suspect the next opportunity well that doesn't sound real good on tv so it was kicked around back and forth about what effective communication can we come up with that authorizes our perimeter position our precision rifle position to eliminate the threat and so we came up and agreed upon, and I'm guessing it's still used today because I don't know the code that is now used, and I and I don't want to use that code. And if y'all keep one one of the one of the best kept secrets for years and years with Dallas SWAT with Dallas PD was BFR, <laughs> BFR, and for the. For the longest time, we'd, we'd you know, uh, uh, deliver a BFR at such and such window or whatever. And the news media would always come up to guys and say, hey, what's a BFR? And no, for years, it stood as a secret. And finally, somebody broke down and told them it was a big uh, rock, you know, a, a BFR. And big I don't know, rock. Big effing rock. Big effing rock. Did you still use BFR? Yes, sir. And it's fun. <laughs> it, it's still breaking glass still with rocks. Still works. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, the, the suspect, anyway, clean, clean, clean this up. Uh, the suspect crawls out on out of the back door, out of the back door on his belly, belly crawling with his 30-30, and somebody came, somebody came on the radio and said, he's on the ground. Traditionally, somebody comes up and says, he's on the ground, that means he's running, okay? And given that, I, I, we had the helicopter at the command post. And I had Curtis Fortner, my trusty assistant squad leader, standing there with his M16. I said, Curtis, get on the helicopter. Do not let this guy get away. And they took off. Well, in that intervening, that, that period of time, 
two sniper, two precision rifle positions fired on this guy, and missed. Why did they miss? And missed. Go ahead, let, Steve. Let me segue on this. Tall grass, guys on his belly crawling. They don't have a good visual of him. Um, they're both perpendicular to, perpendicular to the target, and farthest shot was fifty-five yards out. Oh, gets better. And a a third perimeter officer with an open sight M16 pops the guy. Say who it is. Goslin. Goose Goslin. Goose Goslin, the old crusty goose. A man among men. A man, indeed. So they they call shots fired and they say the suspect's down. Uh, my squad was a primary response team and we got up there and this guy was still on his elbows with his head down on the butt butt stock of his thirty thirty DRT. Didn't even didn't even drop anything. We we weren't when we went up there on him, we weren't sure that he was he was in such a position that we weren't sure he was dead. But he was and that concluded the thing. But there were some go ahead. Headshot, seventy five yards standing position. Pretty impressive. Start to finish, eight and a half hours. Um E unit came in, they had breakfast, they worked out, and they got called to this call out. It, it's hot. It, it, it's a hot Texas day, and they were out there the better part of the day. And people who will argue about physical fitness and the virtues of it, the necessity of it, and it will come out again in, in, in the uh, Cowboys Victory Parade, the yes. physical fitness element to SWAT operations. It's indispensable. So that's, that's the way Lancaster – Lancaster ended there were a lot of facts that came out in the after in the critiques uh, no APC and, and what do we what do we use we have to borrow one and wait four hours um, about command and control what happens when command is OBE overcome by events because he's part of the operation and not in a command position to oversee the operation and issue instructions about how to handle it. So, uh, you know, I can't, I can't fault the person's, I can't fault Doug's desire to, to be in the action. Mm -hmm. But as a command person, uh, that's not the appropriate place to be because you can become part of the problem instead of part of the solution. So Objectivity. Objectivity. What was learned from that? Did, did, did y'all get the APC after that incident? No. In fact, no. I, first I want to go back. OBE. What was that again? Overcome by events. The fog of war, Steve. You just. I, I got I chills. Just, I got yeah, chills. You got chills. <laughs> yes, you got so you chills. Well, he, a little go, erect. That hey, actually might hey, be in the description a, of the deep, episode. Take a deep breath. Oh yeah, no. You're the you're the breathing guy. No, in fact, we didn't get a, an armored vehicle after that because in, in a subsequent operation in '93. Um, there was a uh, a suspect that was off his meds, uh, tried to kill his mom. He lived at home. That's an indicator because he was mid twenties. Um, she ran out of the house, called the coppers. Coppers show up. He's got him pinned down with with handgun fire. Um, so of course we don't have an operator, uh, armored vehicle at that point. So we borrowed one from, I think it was one of the armored car companies. Lomas, Lomas Armored Cars. No. Okay, Man. they showed up. Little did we know. Until we found out later that not all armored vehicles are fully armored. They are not. They are not. And we found out the one they gave us was not fully armored until after it was over. So 
first operation, uh, obviously we had a react team went and snatched them out with the armored vehicle. And, and Doug was on that, on that armored vehicle too, because he just likes that being on the sharp end. But, uh, so that was our first thing. We're like, oh, we got to do something about this. That was the probably the biggest thing that came out of that. Um, Richard Garcia was my sergeant at the time, and you know, typical deal. Got everything surrounded, call, doing negotiations, throw a gas package in there. I don't think we've ever, up to that point, had never used as much gas as we used on that. It looked like the house was on fire. We actually went to burning gas that you put them inside of an ammo can, punch some holes, which we did right then. Um, and throw that in there because it keeps the place from burning, but it kicks out a lot more gas, handheld gas. So, um, yeah, the place looked like it was on fire. Um, do, you, do you want to plug anything in yet? I, uh, my squad was out at the range doing training on that day. It's September 2nd, and the temperature was over. It was, a, it was over hot. 100 yeah, degrees. It was, it was very hot. And so we ran, the call came out, officers pinned down, and we ran code three from the range over to Walcott, which is out south of the Veterans Hospital, mm-hmm. uh, down the south of time, town. Uh, we got there, and and uh, the officers were pinned down in front of the structure, and we used smoke, smoke canisters to create a screen so we could extract the officers. We used the borrowed armor car to, to extract one officer, and we went up from the um, AD, Alpha Delta side, and pulled the other one out under cover of, of uh, smoke. Um, th- this, you know, talk about command and control and stuff. We, we had a new chief over tactical, over SWAT. And, and this guy was, uh, he was proud to be commander of SWAT. And so at noon, he gets on the, uh, 12 o'clock noon broadcast live. And, and he tells, uh, tells, everybody that that we're going to to handle this situation just like we do all barricade situations we we're going to negotiate and if the negotiations prove to be not fruitful then then we'll and we'll put gas uh, chemical agents in there to try to soften him up and get him to come out and if that doesn't work we'll we'll go we'll go do we'll have to go in and we'll have to assault and take the suspect in custody well you, you, as time passed you know what we did we did just exactly what the chief said we would do. Now the one, well, the one catch to this is because of the heat, power was still on in the house because he opted not to cut power in the grid because it was too hot. And and when you go through school, you look at the priority of life. Mm-hmm. In hostage situations, it's the hostage first, innocent civilian second, and your officers come third. Well, okay, there's no hostages in this deal, okay. So, so what, what in your priorities, are you more worried about the heat and its effect on the civilians? Are you, what exactly are you concerned about? Because as things unfolded, this came to a head, the suspect having power on was able to watch the news. And that's the only way he would know that Richard, Sergeant Richard Garcia and his squad was posted up on the blind side of the garage awaiting to make to make an assault on that place and when the suspect came out he opened fire on them that's the only way he would have known that they were there let me cut in here real quick sure um so richard richard was a good sergeant he actually pulled us out of the heat for a while and usually you you get acquiesced you have to give it to somebody else we've been out there for a long time but um it was probably not a good decision to send us since we've been out in the elements that long but i'm not going to argue because i like doing that stuff but anyway so we're 
one of the lessons we learned off some of the other stuff is, especially Arizona, was expected entry points. We didn't want to go through the front door because that's where they expect you to come through. So we're going to go through the back door. And instead of doing multiple breach points and all that stuff, we just decided we were going to do a stealth probe to contact and see if we couldn't get him that way. Um, but anyway, so the guy comes out on the front porch. He's got a rag over his mouth. And we're like, okay, uh, Primer's like, he's at the front door. So we're like, okay, so now we're going to go in the back door. We're going to shift and become an arrest team and take him down the front. And the guy shakes the rag off. He's got a gun underneath it, shoots behind him, off to his right flank, goes through the garage door, through the garage wall, past about three officers, and hits Richard Garcia in the thigh and drops him. So unluckiest man on the face of the earth. There's a good Super Bowl story about him, too. But anyway... <laughs> The guy takes a takes off running across the street. Takes a three oh eight round. Down the driveway. Yep. Yep. Takes a three oh eight round in the chest. A couple of five five six rounds. A couple of nine millimeter rounds. And makes it to the neighbor's yard across the street. The guy was crazy. He didn't realize that he was supposed to die when he gets hit by gunfire. Uh, made it all the way across there. Um, I think one of the issues, another one of the issues that came up on that was we had new guys there that had not practiced tracking running targets, which is an art in of, in of, of itself. So um, Scott was in charge of the MP5 program at that time, and that became part of our, pericula- our curriculum on that is shooting moving targets. Um, and, and for good reasons. We figured out through an after action that that's one of the things we need to work on, which is what after actions are for, and uh, got a lot better at that. But, yeah, there were some, there were some sobering things that, that happened on that, on that hit, and just so much of it was just the intel prior. We, we gave up all the advantage we had. So, yeah, when I talked uh, just a minute ago about um, command being part of the problem, um, Steve said we we delivered gas, burning gas, hot gas in a, in a five gallon, maybe a 10 gallon uh, can up to the front door. Well, we used the APC to get it up there. Well, the APC pulled down the driveway and pulled, made a left onto the street and stopped in front of the house. In that in that uh, that armored car was a sergeant, and and Doug's there too because he's he won't you know he God bless him he he he's got it he loves to have his hand in it and they parking there in front of the house blocked a shot by one of the precision rifles in a house across the street. Instead of being part of the solution, you become part of the problem, and the suspect came out the front door and made a right to his right left to the to the looking at the house and down the driveway and he's taking away as he comes down the driveway taking away the cover of the of the armored car parked there as well as the armored car barking blocking some of the shots by perimeter elements it it, when he when he did that when he came out things really just kind of turned to shit uh fire discipline really sucked uh, we had guys tracking the suspect down the driveway and, and ripping off rounds and I think killed killed three squad cars and one civilian car and luckily went into a house and didn't hurt anybody. Uh, so it, so it, and we had 360 degree coverage around that location so there were there were officers positioned all the way around it and and everybody was in harm's way with friendly fire. So and, and in fact initially, we were concerned that Sergeant Garcia had been hit by friendly fire until ballistics proved that, that the suspect, knowing they were there, happened to land a, land a lucky round. Well, that was another one of the things that came out of it, too, was establishing fields of fire. You know, so basically you said, okay, each guy on the perimeter would des- designate I've got from A to B, 
and, and then somebody take from B to C, so you just have those overlapping fields of fire. And the other thing that came out of that was we had no tactical medical plan. For, for an ambulance to get up there, the, they would not go into the hot zone, so we would have to evac anybody to them. Um, and, and so that became one of those things, too, that we needed to work on and start working our own medical packages um, on site until we got tactical medics, which was a life changer, too. Oh, huge, huge yeah. step, huge step. And we really, we learned uh, the essence of the SWAT medic program at our competitions in Orlando. Yeah. They had a, they had a, I mean, those people down there were very progressive, and they had established a SWAT medic program that, that was just a, a one. And, and we finally got the ball rolling in Dallas. Yeah. It, again, it's evolution, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're and we we've talked about some critical incidents that have trained tactics, have trained the weaponry and and the uh, pro, pro, protective gear that y'all have had, and you got showed a reason to have armor. We're going to get into some other critical incidents that was kind of called a, an anatomy of disaster, and you learn from, and one of them is a very high profile parade the city of Dallas had here and it went to total shit but we've learned a lot because the following year that's back when the Cowboys were actually good we were back in the same role and it, and it was pulled off masterfully okay we're going to get into the evolution of weapons and also we're going to talk about some some rescue situations some school shootings that have that have happened in the United States that we've learned from and we're still learning from we're not going to rush it. So that being said, if any of the other listeners have heard some of the other episodes, they know what we're about to do. You're going to have to tune in for part two to hear the history and evolution of SWAT part two to hear the rest of the story.